Amen. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, is translated in the King James Version of the Bible in this way. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. In most modern translations, they retain the word knowledge, but they translate the word charity as love. Now you can probably, even without knowing some of the historical context, the setting of the Corinthians, you can probably get some sense of what St. Paul is getting at when he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In the spring of 1996, a 17-year-old high school senior from Fremont, California, did the unthinkable, which caused national news. She scored perfectly on both sections of the SAT, the Scholastic Aptitude Test, 1600, SAT. And then she also gained a perfect 8,000 on the rigorous University of California entrance exam. Her friends called her Wonder Woman, largely because of her ability to answer questions and to solve problems and address things that even many of her teachers could not figure out. And even though she aced the University of California's university entrance exam, she chose to enter Harvard University in Massachusetts. A wise choice, since so many good things come from and are found in New England, the region of my birth. But here is where her story gets even more interesting. So as she was being interviewed by a battalion of reporters, she was asked all sorts of inane and ridiculous questions. But she always had an explanation. She always had an answer. She always had something to say. And one reporter decided to sort of conclude this mass television interview by asking her one final question. What is the meaning of life? The young woman's face went blank. She shrugged her shoulders, staring into the running cameras, and said, I have no idea. St. Paul, however, has more than just an idea about the meaning of life in today's epistle, that is, letter, his first one, to the church in Corinth, the Corinthians. But before we expound on that meaning, it's worth reviewing some of the facts, some of the details of Paul of Tarsus' biography. Paul was previously known by his Hebrew name, Saul, and he had been a Pharisee. He was an expert in the Old Testament. He was a scholar. He was a teacher. St. Paul was not only the first great missionary of the Christian faith, St. Paul is the first great thinker, philosopher, and theologian of the faith. Paul was educated. 
He was a Roman citizen. And his sophistication was in vast contrast to most of the first women and men who were disciples of Jesus in the first century. St. Paul probably knew something about the potential for knowledge to puff up. He was smart. He was well-trained. And he, like many bright people, had to be knocked off his high horse by God in order to humble him, to help him realize what was really important in life. St. Paul's conversion was dramatic. He was going down the road to Damascus. He was on a mission to hunt down and arrest Christians. He was a fierce opponent of this new Christian movement. And while he was on the road, he had a vision of Jesus, which blinded him. He soon had his sight restored, but a long period of rehabilitation followed. Paul had to learn to reorient to metanoia his entire life from cursing and hunting down God's people, Christ's people, to glorifying Christ and serving his people. That must have been a tough adjustment. But in the end, Paul acknowledged, still acknowledged the importance of knowledge. Still thought that was important. But he stressed the priority of love over knowledge. The priority of love over knowledge. Now, in the case of these Corinthians that he's writing to, there was a situation in which some Christians were using their knowledge in a way that weakened, that scandalized the faith of other people. It had to do with matters related to meat and idol worship, the worship of false gods. I will leave those historical details, those realities, as food for your thought. But regardless, the priority of love over knowledge has been a distinctive marker of the Christian faith at its best for over 2,000 years. Knowledge is good. Knowledge is useful. Knowledge gained through the natural sciences, the social sciences, the humanities. Knowledge gained through life experience. All of that can be very good. In fact, in fact, because God is a God of truth, because God is truth, because God is truth, veritas, Christians have a mandate to know things deeply. This is good, but knowledge should be used in the service of love. Love is meant to be the defining characteristic of the Christian. And please, not sentimental love. That's not what Christians are talking about when we talk about love in the Christian sense. Not sentimental love. Not wishy-washy, oh, no. So there's a place for sentimental love, of course. And not love that is mere niceness. Please, give me a break. But the kind of love that endures in the face of suffering. The kind of love that persists when feelings of love have dried up. The kind of love that is communicated 
in the grisly, gory image of Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross. However, love in this Christian sense isn't always so dramatic and so costly. It could be as simple as a very busy person taking time out of their day to listen to someone who really needs someone to listen to them. St. Thomas Aquinas, my Dominican brother from the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas, the great medieval theologian, defined Christian love in this way. Love is willing the good of the other. Love is willing the good of the other. Christian love is often more of a choice than a feeling. Speaking of the crucifixion, contemplating the crucifixion can be a very helpful exercise in evaluating our lives and our loves. If you have some guts, listen carefully to what I'm going to ask you. Who or what would you, would I, even in theory, be willing to be crucified for? Listen carefully. This is the heart of the matter. If I could bleed for you right now, and I thought that was reasonable, I would do it. This is so important. Who or what would you be willing, even in theory, to be crucified for? Who or what would you sacrifice for? Who or what would you give up for? Who or what would you suffer for? I remember the day I defended my Doctor of Ministry thesis at Neshota House Seminary, which is just a couple of hours here in Wisconsin. And my advisors, Father Klukas and Father Pei, first took me out to a Chinese restaurant to eat. And uh, yes, in case you're wondering, Father Pei paid. And I remember sitting in the back of the car, listening to these two brilliant, scholarly, yet humble men. And they were just making casual chit-chat. But I was humbled listening to them. I had been sent to Neshota House to get my doctorate by my bishop because I was one of the diocese's leading teachers. I was teaching lay ministers and priests in training as well as priests who had many more years experience than I did. People thought of me as being a very knowledgeable person, well-read, a deep thinker, and yes, a teller, teller of bad jokes. But sitting in the back of that car, listening to those two older priests, I realized how little I knew. I didn't understand half of their references, what they were talking about. And later on, back in Father Pukas' office during the defense, Father Pei was using this word, and he was asking me questions about it, and I had no idea what the word meant. I had to look it up later. But I successfully defended, and I earned my Doctor of Ministry degree. Years later, after I had gone through a difficult time in my life, 
and I was just getting back on my sandals, I was invited to show the house and I preached at their chapel service. Preaching at a seminary is often very difficult because the students, the staff, the faculty, they have seen and heard it all. The big names and scholars from across the church have come and I certainly was not a big name then or now. And the sermon went reasonably. But by this time, Father Pei had become the president of the seminary. And he was an interesting man. He was an interesting man. He was short, bearded, round, with a wonderful sense of joy and warmth about him. He had been a Benedictine monk, got married, became a congregational minister, and then later returned to the active priesthood in the Episcopal Church. What I remember most about Father Pei, more than his leadership of the seminary, more than his scholarship and his brilliance, was his kindness to me. So after preaching at the chapel, he went out of his way at the refectory, the cafeteria, to sit with me and share breakfast. And he sat there and he listened to me and he encouraged me long after most of the people had left in preparation for class. He had a dozen things to do. He had dozens of people who literally wanted a piece of his time. And I was just passing through. But he knew the priority of love over knowledge. Do you? Do I? You know, you and I, we can know all sorts of things about the Bible, about theology, about your job and your interests, about your field of study. And that's all fine and dandy. But if you and I fail to live the grace of love in our daily lives, not perfectly, not without mistakes, but faithfully with intention, starting with our families and our friends, and then reaching out to the wider world, if we fail to do that, we'll miss the point of our faith. We'll miss the point of Christian discipleship. And we will have risked making our lives into what St. Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians 13. We will have turned ourselves into a noisy gong, or a clanging cymbal, or to quote Shakespeare, we will have made our church and we will have made our lives much ado about nothing. Christian love is a practice. It takes grace and effort. And it's often more of a choice than a feeling. Love is willing the good of the other. Love is building others up. It isn't all unicorns and rainbows. Please, give me a break. Love will cost you. Love will sometimes crucify you. But as Jesus modeled authoritatively and taught authoritatively, it is the meaning of life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.